I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, what P.T. Barnum taught today's masters of marketing. He was interested in stirring up not merely knowledge or awareness of what he was selling, but also creating fake controversies that would in turn generate more interest. Then, why a revolutionary idea takes so long to become reality. So many of the things that we see the hype about are still in the realm of science that hasn't been done yet. If the science hasn't been done yet, it means we don't know. We just cannot know how long it's going to take for a scientific breakthrough. Plus, sunshine is free, but at least in the U.S., solar panels are expensive. So the evidence is that solar has fallen very rapidly. It continues to fall in cost. The world is shifting to solar energy. And this is now the only country that I'm aware of in the world that's seeing a decline in residential solar right now. And it's all down to policy. It's not about the technology. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. This is the story of a man who combined business, entertainment, and showmanship. His product, you could argue, was himself, and he was awfully good at marketing it. Detractors have called him a huckster. Admirers thought he was brilliant at business. But this man's genius for self-promotion was like nothing you've ever seen. Well, maybe you've seen something like it, but it's rare. He built himself an over-the-top place to live, gaudy, incredibly luxurious, and he had his struggles, perhaps the most notable being that he ended up in bankruptcy. Fortunately, though, he found a new career in politics. Stephen Mim has edited a new book about this man, P.T. Barnum, who helped shape how we see entertainment and public figures today. And he was also, by the way, on the cutting edge when it came to promoting fake news. Mim is an associate professor of history at the University of Georgia and the editor of The Life of P.T. Barnum. He says that by the late 1800s, Barnum's fame eclipsed even that of presidents. As Ulysses S. Grant discovered, when during his retirement, he went on a world tour. He comes home and and Barnum has a conversation with him and says, you know, I'm sure everyone knows who you were. And he says, no, no, they didn't. But they knew who you were. Everyone asked me about you, Mr. Barnum, you know, and, and what you were up to. You are known. And, and shortly after that, Barnum liked to tell the story about how he got a card that said, Mr. Barnum, United States. And it had been sent from some obscure nation in the distant Far East. And that's all that, that the postmasters needed to know. They knew who he was. They knew where he was. So how did a boy who grew up farming in rural Connecticut become P.T. Barnum. Mim says he was hungry right from the get-go, hungry for fame and hungry for cash. So he moves to New York City and he starts scrambling around trying every imaginable vocation to make it rich quickly, ideally. And eventually he settles on the idea of promoting entertainments. And he settles on a very curious and rather unusual entertainment. Hmm. He finds a woman who is a slave who claims to be George Washington's nursemaid, which would make her 160 plus years old. Of course, she's a fake. And he thinks she's probably a fake, but he also thinks that she's going to be fabulously entertaining. Hmm. And so he crafts a kind of cult of celebrity around this woman whose name was Joyce Heth, and she participates in this, Hmm. and he begins to exhibit her 
as the the link to the revolutionary past, the, mm. this woman who can tell stories about George Washington and and who is, in her personal appearance, seemingly very, very old. And of course, everyone is wondering, is she really what she says she right, is? Right, right, right. And, you know, it's not just this one person. He creates this whole thing called the American Museum in New York City. If you went into the American Museum what would you see? When did it start? Like, what was this museum about? Right. So the answer to that is, what wouldn't you see? In other <laughs> words, it was a place that had things that we don't normally view as being compatible in a museum. It would have stuffed animals, you know, taxidermy, for example. Mm-hmm. It would have perhaps artwork hanging on the walls or meteorites. But it would also have freaks, people who were physically deformed, perhaps, who would perform for audiences. It would have morality plays that taught people the evils of drink. It would have a wide range of entertainments, both didactic and also vaguely fraudulent, all under one roof, and all relentlessly promoted by its owner, P.T. Barnum. And how did he get the money for this? And why did he think that people would be interested in seeing he had incredibly short people, incredibly tall people, you know, like as you, Siamese twins, all these sorts of very unusual right. things that you might not come across in your daily life. How did he get around to doing this? And, and how do you think people would be interested in it? So he started this purely by pluck. He basically, it's a complicated story, but he managed to persuade enough people to loan him the money to buy a failing, much smaller version of this American museum that had existed. And he put all of his chips onto this. And then, and this is what's key to understanding him in a much broader sense, began to relentlessly advertise it. Now, that to Mm. us seems obvious. Of course you would advertise it. But at the time, the idea of advertising something, of flogging it relentlessly, of handing out handbills and putting up posters and putting in notices in the newspaper, that was considered a little tawdry and and maybe also just not necessary. Mm -hmm. But he... He, as he liked to say, said that advertising was a lot like medicine. You know, really small doses <laughs> wouldn't do any good, but really large doses might actually have the desired effect. And so he promoted this museum. He set it up so that you could see it for many blocks in lower Manhattan. Huh. He bathed it in, in light, limelight, hmm. and put up enormous uh, gaudily painted uh, canvases highlighting the wonders within. In other words, he made it a, a destination, the brightest spot in the brightest city of the United States. Now, the other thing, though, he did, and this is very noteworthy, is that for him, advertising blurred into a larger field, what we call public relations today. Okay. So that he was interested in stirring up not merely knowledge or awareness of what he was selling, but also creating fake controversies that would in turn generate more interest. Right, right. The the idea that no publicity is bad publicity. If you can just get your name out there, you've already won. Exactly. So, So, for example, with this slave woman who was claiming to be George Washington's nursemaid, as sales started to drop off, the ticket sales started to drop off, Barnum did a very clever thing. He started to insert columns in newspapers that were fake, claiming that Joyce Heth, this woman, was not in fact a human being, but was in fact what we would call today a robot. It was all an elaborate fake. 
of course, it was already a fake, but right. now he was doubling down on <laughs> right, this. Right. And so people suddenly flooded back in because they thought, well, maybe she is an automaton. I, right. I hadn't thought about that. And right. so they started to go and look and scrutinize. And, and, and then he waged these imaginary wars in the newspapers between various fictional experts as to whether or not this was what it said it was huh. or whether it wasn't. Uh, and he repeated this trick multiple times over. He did this again with something called the Fiji mermaid, which was not a comely mermaid, but rather a <laughs> monkey Shocking. fish not, hybrid. It was not a mermaid is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> right. Definitely not. Okay. And he, he admitted that in his memoirs. Okay. But he also, well, of course, promoted it as these half-naked women mm. in, in water. And, of course, then people would show up and see instead this monkey fish. But he did the exact same thing there where he had experts feuding, claiming that it was fake, claiming that it was real. And, of course, this just stirred up immense publicity. This right, became the right. thing that everyone talked about. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Stephen Mim, an associate professor at the University of Georgia, editor of the book The Life of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. Um so uh, this American museum that Barnum opened, uh, he opened in the early 1840s. Uh, America was still, at that time, obviously a very young country. And I just wonder if this is a guy aiming at the broad middle class and tremendously successful and tons of people are coming through his museum, how much was he shaping, for good and for bad, Americans' view of what the world was like? Because this was somebody who was putting on display people from China. Um, he put people from Fiji who he claimed were cannibals. I assume they were not cannibals. No. Um, no. On display. He, you know, but he was showing museum goers all kinds of things and people that they had not seen before and maybe sort of falsely shaping their idea of like what the world out there was like. That's absolutely correct. So he's teaching people, not self-consciously, but a lot of what people are seeing are going to reaffirm already their existing stereotypes, say, of the Chinese mm -hmm. or of, of people from Africa or the South Pacific, wherever. Right. And so there's a lot of casual racism that is shot through a lot of these entertainments. Probably most infamous was an entertainment that he called the What Is It, with a question mark at the end, which was a deformed African-American man who he sort of portrayed as a potential missing link. Um, and this was right after the, the, the publication of Darwin's huh. on The Origin of the Species. Mm -hmm. And so he is, without a doubt, he's no saint. He is engaging in a kind of trafficking in culture that is going to distort or, or, or rather solidify a lot mm -hmm. of people's prejudices. Mm -hmm. Now, the flip side of that, if I can go down that road, okay. is that the story with him, as it always is with him, is more complicated. So, for example, he was someone who had a kind of typical attitude towards slavery in his day, which was that he didn't think it should be abolished and he didn't really care. Mm -hmm. In the 1850s, his American Museum started 
showing adaptations of Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm -hmm. which was a classic abolitionist novel right. that was turned into a theatrical production. And right. he basically took out all the radical elements of it and made it into like a uh, an apology for the South. Interesting. Because in some ways, I think of Uncle Tom's Cabin as a book that changed a lot of minds or that right. was meant Exa to change a lot of minds. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And, so, and so here he is like basically defanging it. Mm -hmm. But his wife was an abolitionist and he, for a variety of reasons, actually came around to that position huh. and then began staging productions that were abolitionists mm. and in the Civil War became one of the staunchest unionists in New York City. Hmm. And later in life, right after the Civil War, ran for office as a Republican in Connecticut in the state legislature and gave probably what was the highest point of his political career, a speech passionately advocating the right to vote in the state for African-Americans. Mm. So it's this unusual journey of enlightenment, by no means perfect, but, but also probably in many ways reflecting the journey of enlightenment that many Americans went through at this time. We've been talking about how he was, in some ways, this packager of celebrity. You talked about the woman who he, you know, pretended was the the nursemaid of George Washington, 160 years old, but he routinely packaged up celebrities. Some people, and you could argue, went on to be genuine in their own right celebrities. Um, there was a, a dwarf who he called Tom Thumb, um, right. who went on tour, an opera singer named Jenny Lynn. I mean, these were celebrities that he created, but then he launched them out into the world, it, very much like reality. TV, like somebody might start out as a minor character and then they become like their own character. Absolutely. that's And that really is where we see our own world refracted through his life mm -hmm. because at these two individuals you mentioned, Tom Thumb, when Barnum first met him, Tom Thumb was a shy, tiny little child. Mm -hmm. And by the time he was done with him, Tom Thumb was a spectacularly talented, accomplished actor and as you say, celebrity mm -hmm. known the world over. Mm -hmm. He was someone, he's sometimes considered, in fact, the first genuine celebrity, the first wow. person to kind of make that transition, to be famous for being famous. Mm -hmm. And he was created. He was right. packaged by Barnum. Right. Now, Jenny Lind is an even more fascinating story in some respects because Lind had been a well-known opera singer in Europe whom Barnum hired sight unseen for an American tour. Okay. And Jenny Lynn comes and he creates what we today would call a product rollout. He effectively prepares the ground for her arrival. He blesses various products that play off her image. So this is a kind of precursor to product placement. And he then creates a tour that rivals anything the Rolling Stones ever put together in the 20th century in terms of pageantry, theatrical spectacle, and of course, all of this being driven at the core by celebrity, by the figure of Jenny Lind, who he repackaged into a figure of generosity and beneficence, who also happened to have the best voice in the world, or so he claimed. And, you know, it was a success. It is hard to listen to the life of P.T. Barnum, a celebrity who was a genius at marketing, who made a ton of money in New York, who built an over-the-top house, who went bankrupt, who 
it didn't matter, built up another career, who then went into politics, was elected. It's hard not to see some parallels with our current president. But you've said you're not like a huge fan of that comparison to talk about like where you see overlap and where you're mm, you don't really see it. So I think there's a tremendous overlap between our current president and Barnum. If you look at Donald Trump's career, especially as a real estate developer Mm -hmm. and a gadfly in Manhattan, there is actually a great deal of overlap. You know, these tales that Donald Trump, when he was younger, would call into publicists posing as other people does (laughs) literally seem to be taken from the Barnum playbook of planting stories and so forth. Uh, you know, I, I, I hesitate to get too much into politics in a, in a kind of formal way, but Barnum's life is not a life defined by a kind of hardening of prejudice or a hardening or, be, or, or a growing conservatism. It, it seems to instead be defined actually by a growing progressive spirit. Mm-hmm. The other point, though, that I think needs to be made if we're going to talk about the comparisons is this issue of, of business ethics. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Barnum is sometimes held up as a practitioner of bad business ethics. And there's this phrase attributed to him that is not true, that a sucker is born every minute. That's he did not, not actually say something. that. He did not say that. Okay. In fact, what he did view was that all debts had to be paid punctually, on time, and he paid his way out of his entire bankruptcy um, by virtue of working it off hmm. and um, doing so in this kind of rather <sighs> abstemious um, deferred you know, way of deferred gratification. He was someone who really genuinely honored his contracts. Um, people were more than willing to do business with him. And in fact, after he went bankrupt, the reason he was able to get back on his feet, because all of his former business associates helped him. Mm-hmm. They all were happy to lend him credit. He never done them. He right. never... They believed he was a good risk. They believed he yeah. was a good risk. Uh-huh. And I, I'm afraid that Donald Trump's business record is a little more... Um, well, it, it, it's a little different. Stephen Mim is an associate history professor at the University of Georgia. He is the editor of the book The Life of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. Stephen, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. One more thing about P.T. Barnum that has yet another Trumpian overlap. After Barnum's bankruptcy, he went on a tour of Europe and he gave a talk on the art of money getting. He initially thought the idea was ridiculous since, as he said, he was better suited to give a talk on the art of money losing. But Barnum's tour was a smash. And the art of money getting also came out as a book. 107 years before the art of the deal. Predicting the future is not easy, and almost no one has the street cred to do it. One of the people in the tiny pool that does is Rodney Brooks. He's a robotics pioneer who helped invent the Roomba vacuum cleaner, and he now creates robots that work in factories. He worries that the hype around how tech is going to change our lives is often just that, hype. Whether it's self-driving cars or robots that replace people at their jobs or rockets that are going to take tourists to the moon, 
the underlying science for these amazing advances can be kind of half-baked. And when the advances are a little bit closer to coming out of the oven, they have to collide with us, our attitudes, and our unpredictable world. A few years back, Brooks told me that when he and his colleagues created those round robotic vacuums, they were shocked to find that people would name them. One woman, he said, knitted clothes for her vacuum. It's a story that underlines the fact that tech does not just land on our doorstep. We've got to order it and we've got to interact with it. And when it comes to predicting the future, we could be the really tricky part of the equation. Rodney Brooks is here to offer us his vision of what's ahead. He co-founded iRobot, and he's the founder, chairman, and chief technology officer of Rethink Robotics. He's also a professor emeritus of robotics at MIT. Rodney, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me here. Do you remember telling me that story? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, you uh, wrote on your blog recently, and, and we will link to it at innovationhub.org, you, you wrote about some predictions about when you think different technologies are actually going to change our lives or be integrated into the world that we live in. Why take a stab at predicting when different technologies will come to pass or be part of our lives? Well, I think a lot of people are making decisions based on when they think certain technologies are coming. And I think there a lot of the technologies have been overhyped uh, and are going to take a lot longer than people expect. And if we've got people making predictions, I, I saw that one city was uh, thinking about, you know, bidding for the Amazon uh, headquarters sure. and thinking, well, we'll have Hyperloop connecting us to the coasts. And I was thinking, well, that's maybe not quite going to happen real right, soon. Right, right, right. So I thought I would make some predictions, and everyone can make predictions. But if you put dates on them, then when those dates roll around, people say, you're right or you're wrong. You know, right. I figured I'll, I'll put it out there. You wrote, in my view, having ideas is easy. Turning them into reality is hard, and turning them into being deployed at scale is even harder. Talk about some of the leaps there, like between having the ideas and doing the thing and doing the thing and doing the thing big time. Yeah, well, I, I have a, a diagram I show uh, PhD students. You know, here's your PhD. I draw a little box, and then I make the box 10 times bigger. I say, when you've done that much work, you're ready to get seed funding for your company. Then I make it 10 times bigger again, and, and I say, now you're, now you're ready to scale into a real business. And then I make it 10 times bigger again, and I say, now you're starting to get the way you can think about profitability. Because everyone thinks the idea is the, the hard part, but it's all the other stuff around it. Right. And I think... Many of the people who are making predictions about tech have got a little confused precisely because of this, because we've had so much technology that has been relatively easy to deploy because it comes as code in our browsers. Hmm. And that's a really easy thing to roll out, code in a browser. It's almost zero cost to roll out a new version of code. But if it's an electric car or it's a rocket, mm -hmm. or it's Hyperloop, and involves physics and new physics and new technology, that's a lot slower to roll out. And I think we've gotten into this whole Moore's Law trap. Everything's Moore's Law. It's just going to come from faster and faster. For some things, yes. For services over the web, probably still mm -hmm. going to be faster. But for physical stuff in our daily lives, where there's capital cost, no. I don't know about you, but the condo I live in is in a building that was built in 1905. Wow. So that stock, housing stock, is well over 100 years right, old. Right, right. Things take a long time to turn over in the physical world. 
When I also feel like you're saying that things for that we understand already, like we kind of we get what a car is. You know, if I introduced a shirt that looked really crazy, people still know what a shirt is. They know how to put it on. They know how to wear it. But if we're talking about you know, something like the Hyperloop where you're in this little, I, I, it, I mean, the Hyperloop is this idea that Elon Musk had of, of Tesla and SpaceX fame and that maybe would get people from San Francisco to L.A. or something. They basically put in some little capsule and shot, you know, <laughs> for, to L.A. from San Francisco and it would be great. It would be quick. But there's no infrastructure for that. you got to go from zero to 60 on that. Right. Elon Musk, I think, is one of the two greatest entrepreneurs we have mm-hmm. in the world at the moment. The other one being? Um, Jeff Bezos. Okay. But building electric cars, yes, is a lot of innovation, but he didn't have to invent door handles. He didn't have to invent how the windows wind up and down. He didn't have to invent what the seals were. He didn't have to invent tires. All those things have been built for over 100 years. It's tremendous right. knowledge. He didn't have to pave highways. He didn't have to, which Ford did. Ford right. actually was the one, the guy who said, we got we got to have some paved mm-hmm. highways. Whereas Hyperloop, We've never actually demonstrated it, even in a prototype. It's talking about moving humans made of flesh and blood at hundreds of miles an hour in a tunnel for hundreds of miles long underground. There's going to be a lot of things to figure out. How you load, how you unload, how people feel about being inside that little little capsule. There's going to be lots and lots and lots of things. It's not going to come as quickly as some people might think. Let's talk about self-driving cars, which in some ways I feel like there is an infrastructure. We get what a car is. We have streets to move it around on. We know that they pick people. You know, We know how taxis work. So even if I was picked up by a car that didn't have a driver, I get the idea of like being picked up somewhere and being dropped off somewhere else. But you say that self-driving cars, like the idea of having a taxi service, an Uber, uh, a Lyft, any you know any kind of service like that, but that self-driving, it's going to be 15, 20 years before that happens. Talk about why you think that is. It's, it's going to be 15 or 20 years in the general case, easily. Right now, if you use a Lyft or, or an Uber, first of all, you wave your phone at it so they know that you're the person. Right, right. Then it pulls over, maybe into a bus zone certainly not into a legal parking zone, and you exchange words with the driver and you get in. Car companies who are building self-driving, looking at self-driving technology are really careful about the law. I've talked to one of the major car companies. They said, our car will never break a law. Well, they cannot drive in my neighborhood in Cambridgeport any day of the week <laughs> without crossing a double line. You cannot do it. You cannot get around. Mm-hmm. Um, about every three weeks, I need to drive the wrong way down a one-way street. It's the only way I can get past <laughs> whatever is blocking the road. Okay. Um, likewise, if we're going to stay legal, the cars are not going to be able to stop to pick up the passengers. So what we will see first is designated zones where you can be picked up by a mm-hmm. mobility as a service company, whoever it is. So it's not going to be just like it is today, except they're driverless. We have to bring in that new sort of infrastructure of where you can get picked up where you can get dropped off. Mm. Now, what if you're in this self-driving car? Given the success of voice recognition over the last five years, it's gotten fantastically better. We're, we're used to talking to device in our kitchen, whether it be from Amazon or from Google. Well, I'm guessing that we're going to have voice interaction in this mobility-as-a-service car. And what if um, in my neighbourhood in Cambridgeport there is suddenly a construction site and there's no way to go forward? Am I going to be able to tell the, the car, back up, drive the wrong way down this one-way street? 
well, maybe I can tell it, but what if I'm a 14-year-old kid that's been put in there by right. their mother right. on their way to soccer practice? Right. Is the 14-year-old kid allowed to drive the self-driving car by telling her what to do? Or what if you've had a few drinks and you're not telling them something that's going to be right or, or helpful? Or what if it's a dementia patient mm-hmm. being put by the adult kids off to some event? So I think that the idea of the technology... We can sort of see how it works, but the implementation is going to be much slower and much more restrictive. And every time, every time there's some sort of accident or something goes not right, a dementia patient gets trapped in a self-driving car, say, it's going to make headlines. People are going to be very upset about it. So we certainly see now a lot of excitement, I think. We talked about Elon Musk before. I think we see a lot of excitement around the work Elon Musk is doing with SpaceX. We saw not too long ago him launch a a car into space, a Tesla, of course. And he said his ultimate goal is to create a colony on Mars. I wonder how far out you think that is and how realistic you think that is. Oh, I think in the long term, we will get there. Okay. You know, and it's not just Elon. Elon is, is doing great, but uh, uh, Jeff Bezos uh, mm-hmm. is also working in it on right. Blue Origin and has a whole plan out there. And then, and, and then we see Virgin Galactic and we see uh, uh, Paul Allen has his about-to-be-launched uh, plane. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of private people, rich people, working on this. And we will see a lot, but it's going to take longer than people think. I don't think we're going to see a permanent population on Mars really soon. We don't know all sorts of things. We don't know what happens when people are born in less than full gravity. Mm-hmm. Will it be possible to have children mm-hmm. that grow up on Mars? We, we don't know that yet. So it's a great goal and we should be working really hard on it. I think it's an, an important thing for us to do, but it's going to take a while. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Rodney Brooks, a professor emeritus of robotics at MIT. He co-founded iRobot. He's the founder, chairman, and chief technology officer of Rethink Robotics. So your current company creates a robot that um, helps people in light manufacturing. I think it can fill boxes, right, do repetitive tasks like that. And I feel like one recurring question, you've probably encountered it 10,000 times, is how many jobs will robots take? And it feels like over the past year or so, the discussion about artificial intelligence and machine learning and the ability for um, technology to take white-collar jobs. Well, you know, we've seen, obviously, blue-collar jobs both move overseas, but also factories are, have more robotics in them than they used to. This fear about, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence has really escalated. Do you feel like that fear is justified? Well, I I think things are certainly happening, no no question about that. I think the predictions of how quickly we'll get certain capabilities are way overestimated. One thing that we're just terrible at with all our robots is dexterity. Hmm. We don't have dexterous robot hands. The hands that we sell on my robot look just like the robot hands that I used at Stanford University 40 years ago. Really? Um, I, I show in my talk, I show pictures of the two of them, and it's hard to tell which is which. And you don't think we're on, like, the precipice of completely changing that? We are not on the precipice okay. at all. Okay. Um, so we're not good at dexterous stuff. Uh, we are good now at moving in straight lines, mm-hmm. moving stuff around. So we see there was a Massachusetts company, Kiva Robotics, mm-hmm. which uh, developed a way of moving shelves around in a fulfillment center to a person who used their hand to pick up the object, but the person didn't any longer have to run along the the aisle after aisle to get to the right object. Mm -hmm. The objects got brought in a whole shelf unit. 
Amazon bought that company. It's now called Amazon Robotics. It's many, many, many times bigger now than it was. It's being deployed in Amazon's fulfillment centers around the world. And Amazon is ramping up their employment of people to do the manual picking. And they can't get enough people. Um, Because robots just aren't there yet. Robots can't do that. So, yes, as with every technology, there will be displacement of current jobs, the jobs will change. For the people it happens to, it can be disastrous, it can mm-hmm. be horrible, mm-hmm. it can be threatening. But I, I don't think we're at a point where, you know, many people say, oh, the job's going to be done by robots. Right, right, we're right. a long, long way off from that. In fact, if you look at U.S. manufacturing, uh, which has, uh, I think, uh, 300,000 manufacturers in the U.S., many of the manufacturing sites are very worried because their population in their factories been there a long time. They're getting older. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get younger people in. And in fact, U.S. manufacturers and Chinese manufacturers are very worried about where they're going to get enough workers from. Mm-hmm. How can we get better at predicting, at thinking through, for the average person, how long it's going to take for a new technology to really be part of our lives? Because I feel like there's, like I said, there's sort of media, there's reports all the time about something that feels like it's just around the corner, but from the way you think about things, not necessarily. So many of the things that we see the hype about are still in the realm of science that hasn't been done yet. If the science hasn't been done yet, it means we don't know. We just cannot know how long it's going to take for a scientific breakthrough. If it hasn't been even done at all, then it's going to take a long time if we don't know the science of how to do it. If we've had a lab demo, my rule of thumb for robotics is 30 years. 30 years from when it gets demoed. Do you know when I first saw a (laughs) car drive along a freeway at 55 miles an hour for over 10 miles driverless? No. 1987. Really? Near Munich. Okay. (laughs) Um, When do you think the first car will drive across the country, uh, hands-free, feet-free? I don't know. I thought there was a Google car that drove across the country, but maybe it had a a minder in it or something. Well, with a minder. With a minder. When, When do you think? I don't know. It happened in 1995. 1995, okay. It, so was, was... it was Carnegie Mellon okay, University. Okay. So the first one is 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Next one is over 20 years ago. These things take a long time. And people who are just waking up say, oh, you can drive along a freeway now. They think, oh, it's all solved. No, we're already 30 years in on right, self-driving right. cars. People have been working on actively right. for 30 years. Hmm. Is there a technology out there that you think the other way about, where you're, you think it may be more imminent then we may believe it to be. Oh, I wish I knew. Okay. You know, I'll give you an example of one that just snuck up on us, wham, and that is um, being able to talk to our machines. Hmm. Five years ago, I don't think anyone imagined we could have such good speech recognition, especially in noisy environments, as you see on the Amazon Echo, Alexa, or you see on Google Home. Snuck up on us totally. People were not predicting it was going to get that good that quickly. And now it's deployed. So that's something where, like, in the 80s and 90s, people were not doing demos of it. Um, I used to say in the the early zips, you know, 2002 to 2003, about speech recognition, I'd say, yeah, it's sort of like, say or press two for frustration. <laughs> in, in fact, I had, I had a speech-controlled office from around 2001 to 2003, where everything was under speech control. And it was hard work to use mm. my office. But mm. I thought, I got to live this, I got to do it. It was hard, hard work. And now, today, poof, it just works. 
So we will have you back in like 20, 30 years and see how this all shook out. Does that sound good? That's a deal. All right. Rodney Brooks is Professor Emeritus of Robotics at MIT. He co-founded iRobot. He's the founder, chairman, and chief technology officer of Rethink Robotics. Rodney, thank you so much. Thank you. On our website, we've got Rodney Brooks's personal story of a childhood spent in Australia loving space and science fiction. And he talks about the thrill he got when he first saw the computer HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey. It was a murdering psychopath, but apart from that, it was fantastic. There's a saying, elections have consequences. And that was certainly true for Andrew Birch. You could argue that the first day of the Trump era, November 8th, 2016, was the beginning of the end for Birch's business. On that day, he was running one of the biggest solar panel installation companies in America, Sungevity. Then the election results started to roll in and concern about green energy companies began to grow. The financing deal that was in the works for his company died. But Birch had noticed problems in the U.S. solar panel market long before Trump's victory. Problems that reveal why you probably do not have solar panels on your roof and why, if you do, you are a rarity in America. When Birch came here after working on solar panel installations in Australia, he was thrilled to be working in the land of the free market, a place where you could sell solar panels like hotcakes. But, it turns out, only if you like your hotcakes drenched with regulation and sold at prices that are jaw-dropping. Just to give you the real hard numbers straight up front, a, a customer in the United States today for a typical system size, which is about 17 panels, which would power your average home, okay. would pay about $16,000 okay. uh, for okay. that system. Okay. For the exact same technology in Australia, where we came from before the United States, uh, today, the same technology the customers in Australia will pay about six and a half, seven thousand dollars $7,000 for. And the difference is regulation, red tape, bureaucracy. Okay. So... In Australia, you're paying $6,000 to power your suburban home with solar panels. Here, you're paying for the exact same thing, but it's costing you like $16,000. Correct. You're talking about almost tripling the price. How is that possible? It's primarily two things. Uh, firstly, it's the permitting process. And secondly, it's electrical code. So to quickly pass those two, permitting is the process by which we, when we sell a residential solar system, we get approval from the local city council, in effect, to install it. Okay. What that means is we have, turns out to be about a three-month process on average where we have to visit the home, get on the roof, do very detailed measurements, create electrical-grade drawings, which would typically be done for power stations and very large power plants for very small residential systems, complete paperwork that then is submitted off, usually physically to the permitting office, to then get a turnaround of you know anywhere from three weeks to a couple of months, or often in the northeast of the country, it can take as much as six months to get an approval, often with change orders, so that you'll say, you know, you can't put the panel there, huh. or you have a problem with the wiring there, so you have to go back to the house, change it again, go back and submit. 
boiling all that down, what it means is three months of process and a whole bunch more cost. In Australia, you sell the system and you install it and they cost $10,000 less. It's just that simple. And and that's true in a bunch of European countries, too, that it's pretty simple, right? Yeah. I mean, I use Australia as the example, just, you know, you focus on one country to make the math simpler. But across right. the world, solar is still half the cost. It's actually a third of the cost in Asia, because in addition to the lack of red tape, you also have lower labor costs. Okay. But the bottom line is in Germany, UK, Netherlands, all the European countries, there's a single form, usually online. You complete it and you can install it. Does that mean that solar panels in Germany and Australia and stuff are, like, less safe? They're installed less well because they just don't have, like, all these really important regulations that we do? No. So the evidence is that there is no improved safety or improved efficiency or improved quality. So there are millions, literally millions of solar installations across Europe and Australia. Australia, in fact, has 20% of its roofs now have a solar PV system on the roof supplying energy to the home. It's one of the highest penetration rates in the world. And there is no change in the quality or safety relative to the United States. So the, the permitting and code requirements here have not added any additional layer of safety or quality. So... Why do we have the complicated system that we do that it sounds like kind of discourages people from getting solar panels and, you know, obviously is a bit of a hit to the to solar energy in the U.S.? My opinion is that it is a lack of a coordinated approach by the various agencies involved and the industry to sort of sit down and say, what do we want as an industry? Uh, how can we make this the most efficient given this shift towards distributed energy from what has been centralized generation, which did require, you know, electrical gear drawings and a lot of permitting and oversight for safety reasons because you're, you know, thousands of megawatts of scale. How do we create a simplified code and permitting process like the overseas countries have done to make it efficient and affordable for homeowners to go solar? And that just hasn't happened. It's really a legacy of you know, decades of incremental growth where we've allowed, you know, what are tens of thousands of independent jurisdictions to state what the permitting policy should be um, that's ended up where we are today. Now, I'm surprised that California, which has been really in the forefront of creating environmental policy for decades, California as a state has not sat down and said, look, we're a sunny state. This is a great place for solar panels. Let's get them up on roofs. Let's move away from fossil fuels, which I know California is eager to do. So I think that desire exists. I think the population, the democratic process here wants clean energy. Every study, every bit of evidence we have suggests that, yes, people want more clean energy. They want access to solar. I think there's a lack of knowledge on this. This is, you know, an unknown fact, even amongst policymakers and government, that solar costs less than half as much as it does in California overseas. Huh. You know, in my experience, formerly running the third largest residential solar company in the U.S., based here in California, you know, we ourselves were trying to solve everyday problems. And in fact, there was a push with permitting to try and standardize things. But it's only when you sit back and you travel for a year and you speak to the companies overseas and you, you actually study those markets that you realize how just profound that differences in cost, you know, $10,000 more for your average customer. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, lay out some of the countries? I think you said Australia 
has about 20%, is that right? About 20% of homes have solar panels? That's correct, yeah. How about um, the percentage of homes in the U.S. that have solar panels? So we're still in the U.S. at about 1% penetration, so very wow. low. Um, wow. okay. Even with that, we are employing as an industry 300,000 people. So it has been successful. It's grown very rapidly. But what you've seen more recently is the growth has slowed. And in fact, in 2017, turned negative for the first time in many years. Huh. So we're coming up against a number of factors that are slowing down growth in the States. Mm. Uh, the, obviously, regulation and cost is the biggest, the, most, the fundamental driver. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Andrew Burge, former CEO of Sungevity, a solar panel installation company. In January, President Trump put 30 percent tariffs on solar panels coming in from other countries. Will that help spur more manufacturing of solar panels in the U.S.? Uh, absolutely not. I think if you speak to anyone in the industry, they would say that's not the case. Okay. Uh, firstly, if the goal is protecting the economy and creating jobs, then what's unfortunate here is that this policy will have a negative effect because all the jobs in solar are, in fact, in the sale and installation process. Okay. The actual manufacturing, as with many products these days, is done by robots. Um, mm. And there is no manufacturing industry really in the States because there are pockets that have, that have scaled very rapidly in Asia primarily where scale has been achieved. So it's just not possible for, for anyone to compete against that right now. Okay. So no jobs and no chance of any more manufacturing. Hmm. Um, so the Solar Energy Industries Association said that those tariffs, those 30% tariffs, would eliminate more than 20,000 jobs in the U.S., as you said, mostly in like people selling solar panels to other people, people getting up and installing them. Do you think that that's going to happen, that more than 20,000 jobs will disappear because solar panels will get more expensive and more people will say, I, no, I can't afford that. Yes. I mean, if you add to the cost of solar, less people will buy it. And that's just the simple reality for any product in the retail market. And already U.S. customers are paying two and a half times what uh, overseas customers are paying for these panels. Huh. This will add another probably 10% roughly to that cost. So, you know, American consumers are getting shortchanged by effectively policy mechanisms. You know, the, the good news in solar globally is that the cost of the actual technology has continued to decline very, very rapidly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I was born 40 years ago, a solar panel cost $75 per watt. Okay. Uh, when we started our company 10 years ago, it was $4 a watt. Whoa. And today it's less than 40 cents a watt. So the evidence is that solar has fallen very rapidly. It continues to fall in cost. The world is shifting to solar energy. You know, India, China, Australia, Europe are accelerating their aggressive rollout of solar across their economy, shifting to clean energy. And this is now the only country that I'm aware of in the world that's seeing a decline in residential solar right mm. now. And it's all down to policy. It's not about the technology. Is there anything that we lose besides renewable energy, by not having much of a solar industry in the U.S. and by, you know, other countries, in, you know, Australia, uh, European countries, Asian countries, adopting solar in big ways and just sort of getting on that train and going forward without us. Is there anything that we lose just besides, you know, like I said, solar energy? So to answer that, I'm going to put myself in the shoes of, let's call it a Republican politician who has no interest or belief in climate science and okay. to take environment totally off the table. Okay. 
Now, if you believe in this technology curve, which we've, the evidence is very clear, as we've seen panel costs fall every year for the last 30 years to the point where solar is now the lowest cost energy solution for hundreds of millions of consumers across the world. It's cheaper than the existing grid price. Okay. With the lack of regulation, that's the fact today in Australia and Europe and in Asia. So there's a giant shift happening to solar energy in those countries. Now, what that means is as the penetration rate increases of the low-cost solution, the cost of energy will decline for the whole country. Okay. So if the United States does not fix this regulatory problem where it continues to have twice the cost of solar energy, by result, it will end up having the highest cost energy in the world. It will be an uncompetitive economy over the coming decade or two as this transition happens everywhere else in the world. Hmm. That's the fundamental economic impact. But what you're saying is like other in, uh, countries will have, it sounds like almost a lower cost of living and doing business overall because their energy needs are getting upgraded while ours aren't. Yeah, exactly. Because they've made it easy and simple without the regulation to go solar, the systems cost less than half as much. So consumers are adopting it without subsidy. Here in the States, it's required. There's still a 30% tax credit that makes it more affordable, even though it's fundamentally more expensive because of the regulation. Mm. So you've got this kind of double hit where actually if you got rid of the regulation, you could also ultimately get away without the tax credit. And right. that's when the free market takes over and consumers can shift to solar energy as they're doing everywhere else in the world. Hmm. Andrew Birch is the former CEO of Sungevity, a solar panel installation company. Andrew, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. got more about how Andrew Birch would like to see the solar industry change in America and what he's seen abroad on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. And by the way, though the American piece of Birch's company is no more, he says the European part has grown quite a bit and it's been bought by a European utility company. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Songer and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.